If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, uh, is where we're going to be this morning, taking a look, uh, continuing this journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5 together, we'll take a look at verses 33 to 37 this morning, skipping a couple of texts. We're going to come back and hit them in the weeks to come, but we're going to camp out here this morning in Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Uh, We'll read that text. If you don't have a copy of it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me so you can follow along. Jesus, in the context of his teaching, says this in verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, as we've been working our way through this sermon together, we've been talking about the fact that what Jesus is creating in his church is a community of people who are bound together by the gospel that would be bright and salty. So it would be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And so these aren't just like self-help messages that teach me more how uh, to be a better person, but they are how we can be a better people in reflecting the glory and likeness of God to the world that is around us. And so as we take a look at this text this morning, we're looking at it through the same lens, and a part of what Jesus is wanting to form in the lives of those who are his followers is a deep integrity and commitment to telling the truth. So there would be people of wholeness and not fractions. You know, the word integrity comes from the root word integer. And if you're a math person, this is about all I know about math, so uh, don't ask me anything else. Uh, But the word integer means whole number, right? It's a whole number. Um, And integrity means you're a whole person. So there's a, a, a person of integrity is, there's a wholeness about them in which they are the same in every circumstance, situation, or context in which they find themselves. So they're a people who are committed to truth and to truth telling. And listen, this is becoming less and less common in the world in which we live. It's a world that is inundated with fake news, right? Seen that hashtag floating around there quite a bit in the recent months. Um, as accusations continue to be lobbied back and forth between those in power and those reporting what they do, right? There's fake news going on all around us and alternative facts. Everybody's got a spin. They want to put on things, right? I didn't know you could have facts that were alternative. I thought facts were facts, but um, supposedly there are things that's called alternative facts in the culture in which we live today as well. Um, and because we live in a world in which truth and truth-telling is becoming more fluid and less solid, right? It's becoming more fluid and less solid, And so as a result, what Jesus has to say to us, um, he's saying to us at both a political level, you can say, well, yeah, all that's going on at at the highest level of power in our nation, but it also takes place at a personal level as well that we're gonna see before we're done this morning. And it is into this kind of culture that Jesus has wanted to create a counter-cultural community that has a deep wholeness and integrity and is committed to truth where our word is our bond and it has deep value to it. See, a salty and bright community is a place where people recognize their word has worth to it. It has an importance to it. And I want you to notice the importance Jesus places on it here. Because you may be thinking, 
And you know what? Integrity and truth-telling, that's kind of like a footnote in, the, in, in, in my life. It's not like one of those bold, emboldened, main, underlined, italicized points, right? It's not one of the big deals for me. It's more of a footnote for me. But I want you to notice the importance Jesus places on it because he sets it in the midst of a conversation in which he talks about murder and anger. He talks about adultery and lust. So in Jesus' mind, being a people of integrity and truth-telling is not a footnote reserved for the corners of your life, but is one of those main headings on the chapters of your life. That's what Jesus says. And I want to press that a little bit this morning by us considering a couple of consequences that take place whenever it's absent from our lives. Before we even get into the text, I want to press on you the importance of what Jesus has to say here because there's at least four destructive consequences that follow whenever we fail to be people of wholeness and integrity. We fail to be people who tell the truth. And the first one is this, is that whenever, when we lack integrity and truth-telling in our lives, it destroys human community. It destroys human community. One scholar, Lewis Smedes, an ethical scholar, said it this way. He said, imagine a society in which no one trusted another to keep a promise, in which every leader was expected to lie as a matter of course, in which every teacher was suspected as an academic cheat and every preacher a moral fraud, in which contracts were expected to be honored only when they paid well, (laughs) and in which A friend's word was no better than an advertisement. He says, no person in such a society could ever confide in a friend or seek help from a counselor. No partner could ever bank on the loyalty of another. No one could make decisions in assurance of having all the facts in hand. No one could be certain of his neighbor's next move. Life would be brutalized. Without trust, we would change from a community to a pact, from a society to a gang. Because whenever we lack integrity and deep truth-telling, human community begins to be destroyed and pulled apart. It creates ruptures in relationships where you don't know if you can trust the word of the person who is sitting to your left or to your right. You don't know what their motives or their intentions are. You don't know if they're just playing you for a fool or if they're actually giving you honest, unfiltered truth. See, every time we fail to be truthful, it cuts into people and culture in such a way that the banks of trust, they begin to erode And they begin to slip away and it leaves us with no reasonable expectations of what those people, our neighbors, our boss, our co-workers, our kids, our spouse, our friends, what they may do. Human community is destroyed whenever we lack this kind of deep whole life integrity and truth telling. But second of all, it also violates human dignity. It violates human dignity. See, when we lie and we deceive people, we end up using them. They become a commodity for us. They become an object for us. One author said it this way. She said, there are lies of gossip. And whenever people are gossiped about, it makes haters out of the other individuals. So they become an object or a commodity. They become a hater, not a person. Or there are lies of advertisement that makes consumers and money out of us. We become an object, something to be used. Or there are lies of politicians that make power out of us. So we become an object for, our, for somebody's platform to ascend to a position of power that they've been trying to get. So all we are really like pavestones towards their power whenever we deceive and pull the wool over people's eyes. 
And deception and dishonesty does that not only at the highest levels of corporations and politics, but it does it personally as well. So that you only give the facts to individuals in your life that you believe are pertinent for you to get what you want from them. Right? And it violates human, it, it treats them as something less than human, as an object or a commodity to be used, not a person to be known and loved. Thirdly, thirdly, whenever you lack deep, whole life integrity and truth-telling, not only does it destroy community and violate dignity, but it also leads you into a head-on collision with reality. It leads you, because eventually, right, the truth is going to seep out from all the dams that you've tried to create in your life. Eventually those dams are going to fail. The plugs of deception and falsehood you've placed in your life are going to collapse. It's kind of like over the course of time, if you were to stand at the base of a dam that's holding back these mighty rushing waters of a river that have risen and covered, you know, 30,000, 50,000 acres of land where I catch fish, right? So you're standing at the base of that dam and you're continually through choice and decision and action and words chiseling away over time at the base of that dam. Eventually that dam is going to collapse and those waters that were being held back are going to rush in and they're going to flood every aspect or area of your life because the truth eventually will come out. It will catch up. Eventually your parents will find out. Students, eventually your spouse will find out. Eventually your boss will find out. Eventually someone, it's going to be uncovered in some, some way, shape, or form. And when it does, it's kind of like, like remember those word problems in school? Like you've got train A in Chicago and train B in Los Angeles and they leave at set amount of time going at a particular rate of speed on these tracks. When are they going to pass each other? See, the issue isn't that they're going to pass each other. They're going to collide into each other because reality only has one track. It only has one rail, and eventually the deception and lies and truth are going to collide with each other. And when it does, here's the fourth destructive consequence. Not only will it shatter relationships in your life, but you won't know who you are anymore. See, the folks who have lived a life in which they've spun a web of lies, right? The lack of integrity and truth-telling, it erodes human identity. See, one of the ways to get at who you are, your identity, is that there's something that is constant about you in every context, in every circumstance, in every situation. There's something that is constant. And so you're not continually kind of padding the truth or telling exaggerations or half-truths or outright deception as you move like a chameleon from context to context to context. If that's the case, then what will eventually happen is that you will lose a sense of who you are. Right? A, guy by the, a gentleman by the name of Robert Boltz wrote a, a play turned into a movie called A Man for All Seasons. It was a story of St. Thomas More. And in, in that movie or in that play, there's a scene in which he is facing trial and execution for particular positions that he holds. And his daughter comes to him to plead with him to recant his statements, to back off of his positions. And this is what he says to her when she comes to plead with him. He says, Looking at his daughter in the eyes, he says, when a man takes an oath, he's holding his own self in his hands like water. And if he opens his fingers then, he needn't hope to find himself again. In other words, he says, if he opens his fingers and the water runs out, you're going to be constantly grasping to find who you are. You'll lose your sense of identity because there's nothing constant about you from context to context, circumstance to circumstance, situation, relationship to relationship. You'll leverage and manipulate 
And there won't be anything that's true, real, or steady about you. You'll lose your identity. You won't even know who you are. So do you still think it's a footnote? <laughs> or do you see that it's a, this is a chapter in your life that Jesus presses with such great importance because when it's absent, these are the consequences for us. And so what does Jesus say that we should do? Let's take a look at it in the text this morning. What does he say? How should we respond? What do we do with this? All right? And this is the counsel that Jesus gives us, the instruction and teaching that he lays out for us. He says this. He says what we should do is that we should speak simply and truthfully. We should speak with a simplicity and in a, a way that tells the truth in honesty. See, what Jesus is doing is he's building a community so devoted to truth and faithfulness that oaths, vows, and pledges that people would swear by would be unnecessary because their yes would be yes and their no would be no and there would not be anything in between. See, when you think about what Jesus says here in the text where he talks about not taking oaths or not pledging yourself or not taking vows, those were so common in the Old Testament. Covenant oaths were common. Covenant vows and pledges in the Old Testament were all over the place. And over and over and over again, the people of Israel were admonished to keep their oaths, to pay their vows. It was the language of the Old Testament, right? To pay their vows, to keep their oaths, to keep their word and be, and be true to what they had pledged to do. But what had happened, see what had happened was, like over the course of time, as the, the, the Pharisees began to take a look at what the Old Testament said about not swearing falsely and about not deceiving and telling lies, they began to develop like case law around that, right? You know what case law is? It's where you take the law and you begin to apply it to all these different cases, right? And so they would develop case law and they, they would say, okay, well, and, and for the Pharisees, they had like a sliding scale of case law as they took this law of not swearing falsely and applied it to these different contexts, and so they, 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 in order to create some loopholes for themselves, right, they, they, they would begin to, they, they wouldn't swear, like if, in the Old Testament, if you swore by the name of God or the presence of God, like God's name or the temple, right, those were particular vows that you, that you, they felt like you had to fulfill, you had to follow through on those things, because you invoked the name and the presence of God. But they had lesser things they would swear by as well. Right? They would swear by not by the not, they would swear by the altar, but not by the gift on the altar that was being offered to God. They would swear by the courts of the temple, but not by the holy of holies. Or they would swear by heaven, or they would swear by earth, or they would swear by all these lesser things, so as not to invoke the presence of God or the name of God. And oftentimes they did so with no intention of ever really keeping the vows or the commitments or the pledges that they had made. And so there was a sliding scale. And so the higher the commitment, the greater the vow, the, most, the more severe the consequences were for them. The lesser the commitment, the lesser the vow, the lesser severe the consequences. You with me so far? Right? And so this is kind of the, the, the little game that they played with themselves, right? And so the loopholes they created to get out of keeping the promises that they had made. And so when Jesus speaks to this, often when he says, you know, you've heard that it was said of those of old not to swear falsely, to swear falsely in Jesus' day often referred to making a vow by a lesser thing in order to avoid keeping what you had pledged or promised. So I vowed by the earth, or I made an oath by, by the hairs on my head. I made it, made it by a lesser thing to avoid doing what you had promised to do. Because there was a sense that if you did not invoke the name or the presence of God, like it, it, it didn't count. It was like making a pinky promise with your fingers crossed behind your back. That's kind of what it was for the Pharisees. Right? 
But, what, but, 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 they, but they completely missed what Jesus is trying to communicate to them here. I heard a story earlier this week. Another pastor told this story about a man that he had counseled with who had blown up his marriage. And he had done so through an adulterous affair. And he talked about, um, in, in the context of these counseling sessions, the man shared with him, hey, listen, whenever my wife was out of town, I would bring my mistress over to my house. But that was a problem for him. And here's the reason it was a problem for him. is because his wife had put up, like, Pictures of them all over the home, every hallway, over the mantle, like on the, on the, next to the sink, in the bathroom, on the nightstand, the coffee table. There are pictures of their wedding day all over the house. And so the man said, before I could bring my mistress over to my house, I would have to go around and, I'd have to go around and turn all the pictures around. Right? Why? Why was he doing that? Because even the representation of his wife's presence there, he realized that he was violating his vow, his covenant oath to his spouse. So he would turn her picture around so just even the representation of her presence wouldn't be there enough to, to, to dissuade him. And see, what, what the Pharisees were doing, they were trying to turn God's picture around. They were trying to turn God, so God, God's not going to see, God's not going to know, right? I'm not invoking the name of God or the presence of God in this vow, right? I'm making a pinky promise, got my fingers crossed behind my back because I have no intention of keeping this and I'm not going to swear by the name of the presence of God. But it's like they miss Psalm 139. When the psalmist writes these words, he says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the night of the light be as night to me, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. God's presence permeates everywhere. He is omnipresent. There is no place that he does not see. There is nothing that he does not hear. There is nothing that he does not know. There are no words that come out of our mouth that he does not hear us utter. Whether they're sworn by the temple or by the, by the name of God or by the hairs on your head or the earth. You see, what Jesus says here. What Jesus says here is, listen, all of this is connected to God, right? He says the heavens are his throne. So you can't swear by the heavens because God is there. That's where his throne is. That's where he's propped up. You can't swear by the, by the earth because that's his footstool. When God is on his throne in the heavens, he's so expansive that anthropomorphically, right, putting human language to the presence of God, his feet spill over and they are his, the earth is his footstool where his feet rest. So he's there. He says, don't swear by Jerusalem because that is the, the locus of God's rule on the face of the earth during his time there in Jerusalem, the holy city. Don't swear by the hairs on your head because in Jesus' day there was no Rogaine or just for men, right? You couldn't change your hair color. There was no dyes. He said, you can't make one hair on your head white or black. God has sovereign authority even over the hairs on your head. He rules and reigns over everything. He is everywhere. So Jesus says, don't make oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no because God is everywhere. He hears everything. So be a person who tells the truth. Be a person of integrity, of wholeness about you. That's what Jesus is driving at here in the text. In other words, Jesus says, no matter where you, what you swear on upon, it is connected to God because you cannot escape the presence of God. And one of the things this means, listen, let's get real practical here this morning, is this. 
This means there's going to be no levels of truthfulness in your life. A couple of years ago, one of our elders was visiting with a, uh, a, a, another church member at the time, and they had been absent for a while and, and kind of d- disconnected for a while, just kind of following up with them, sh- trying to shepherd them well. And so just began to ask questions and kind of, kind of press a little bit, hey, where are you guys at? How are you doing? Um, and, and the response that he got back, I think, was so, um, so, so it, it was clear that it just kind of missed this whole idea, because he said, well, listen, am I talking to an, an elder of the church or am I talking to my friend? As if the answer or the response was going to be different if he was talking to a pastor or an elder versus the friend, right? As if there was levels of truthfulness. I'll have this amount of truthfulness with you if I'm talking to you and you're wearing the pastor hat right now. And I'll have this amount of levels of truthfulness if you're wearing the friend hat right now. Right? So there's levels of truthfulness many times in our lives. And Jesus says, listen, it can't be that way. In order to have a whole life integrity, there's not levels of truth that you tell depending upon the person who's in front of you or the situation that you find yourself in. Listen, it's not, it's not, it's not more severe to lie in church than it is to lie in the car on the way home from church. You realize that? That's what Jesus is driving at. Let me ask you this question. If, you, if everything that you said and everything that you did today were to be captured on an iPhone uploaded to YouTube, pushed out to whole, all the world to see where to go viral over the next three days. Would it change what you say? Would it change what you do? And I think we're being dishonest with ourselves if we say, no, I'd just keep on rolling. <laughs> it would absolutely change some of the things that we're saying and what we're doing because we've fallen prey to this lie that there are levels of truthfulness in our lives. And Jesus says, no, but you speak simply and you speak truthfully. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you go to the courts, right, and they say, we're going to swear you in for testimony in a case, and they tell you, put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, that you, you're free to do that. If somebody else wants you to take an oath to validate your, the, the truthfulness of your claims, he said, you're free to do that, but with you, he said, your yes should be just like your hand was on the Bible, saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Your no should be just like your hands on the Bible, saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There's not levels in there for us. So that to speak simply and to speak truthfully means that we, yes, we do keep our word, that we are truth tellers, but it also means we don't exaggerate the truth to paint ourselves in a little bit better of a light. It also means that we don't make grand verbal gestures, Right? We live in a world of grand gestures, don't we? Where your loyalty and your love, your allegiance and affection are demonstrated because you're willing to go big, right? So you see these epic proposals that guys spend three years dreaming up and writing down and scaling out every moment of the time they're gonna spend with their future spouse. You see these epic, all these epic Valentine's Day recognitions and celebrations or anniversaries or birthdays, big grand gestures to demonstrate your love and your loyalty, your allegiance and affection. And Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. They don't need grand verbal gestures to show your loyalty to someone. It shouldn't be dependent upon those things. Listen, in my time in ministry, the people who have made bold declarations to me 
have been the people who I think had really no intention of keeping those declarations. They just wanted me to feel good about myself in the moment, but it's been the people who have spoken simply and truthfully to me who I know have been in our corner in this mission that Jesus has given us to share the gospel, shape disciples and send missionaries here in this local context. So Jesus says, you don't need bold declarations and grand gestures verbally to show your allegiance and loyalty, but what you need is to speak simply and truthfully. It also means that you don't withhold information that could damage your reputation, right? Because you're trying to posture yourself. We could go on and on and on and on. We, we could spend all morning doing this, but I got to move, right? Jesus says, speak truthfully and speak simply. As if every yes that came out of your mouth and every no that came out of your mouth was an oath that you made in the presence of God because he is here. So what keeps us from this? What keeps us from this whole life integrity? What keeps us from t- being truth tellers who, who are whole from top to bottom? And here's what Jesus says. Look at what he says in the text. He says at the end of um, verse 37, he says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now notice Jesus doesn't say anything more than this is evil. Jesus says anything more from, than this comes from, in other words, it has a source Anything more than this is coming from somewhere. It's got a source. And elsewhere in the scriptures, Jesus teaches us that whenever the mouth speaks, where does it speak from? Speaks from an overflow of what? Of the heart. So whenever words are coming out of here, they have a source. They're grounded somewhere. And Jesus says they're grounded in the heart. And so the source of anything more than this is an evil heart that has been deceived. In fact, some of your translations say it this way. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Some of your translations word it that way. And what is it saying? That Satan himself is a deceiver. And any, anything more than this is just trying to practice deception. Trying to pull the wool over somebody's eyes. And Jesus says it shouldn't be that way. But our hearts are compelled. See, a heart that has been deceived will deceive. A heart that is believing lies will lie. There's a source for the anything more, and Jesus says it's the evil that exists within our hearts. Tim Chester, in his book, You Can Change, he said, he said this, he said, we sin because we believe the lie that we are better off without God, that his rule is oppressive, and that we will be free without him, and that sin offers to us more than God. So where do, where do these half-truths come from? Where do the exaggerations come from? Where do these bold declarations come from? Why can't we just simply say yes or no? See, we believe we're better off to exaggerate. We're better off to tell a half-truth. We're better off to outright deceive someone than to embrace the teaching of Jesus about whole life integrity and truth-telling. We believe a lie that we will be better off. It will be better for us if we act this way. We believe those things. So that's why whenever we go out of here, you can go, man, the pastor talked this morning about, he said, he basically said, stop lying. And you can go home and go, stop lying, stop lying, stop lying, right? You can slap yourself every time. Slap yourself in other places every time. But here, listen, you're not gonna be able to walk out of here and go, stop lying, look in the mirror and go, stop lying, stop lying. If your heart is still believing a lie that you will be better off, you'll be better off without coming under the rule of Jesus and being a person of whole life integrity and truth-telling. 
Because your heart will continue to be deceived and you will continue to deceive and you can slap yourself every time you do and say stop lying. So what you have to do is you have to get to the source of the anything more than this. And you have to begin to replace the lies that your heart is believing with truths about God and about yourself. And there's two of them that I want to help you make an exchange with this morning. And these come out of Tim Chester's book as well, entitled You Can Change. I, there's four of them that he talks about. I'll give you two this morning, save two for some time later, and maybe you'll go read the book. All right? But here's two of them. Here's two of them. The first one is this. The first lie. See, because in order to become a people of truth, you have to believe the truth. You have to believe the truth. And the first one is this. The first truth you have to believe is that God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. He says it this way in the book. He says, we often associate the sovereignty of God with theological debate. In other words, it's reserved for seminary classrooms, Bible colleges, people who really want to geeked out about theology. But he says, but for all of us, it's a daily practical choice. I have to choose between a fantasy in which I'm sovereign and the real world in which God is sovereign. Between my false sovereignty and God's real and true sovereignty. He says, when I feel like I'm running away, I have to choose to find refuge in God. He says, I have to, I have to make a choice daily. It's not reserved for dusty bookshelves and libraries on campuses with names that you can't pronounce. Right? What, it's re- what, it, what it does is whenever it gets dropped into the daily realities and practices of life, God's sovereignty forces you to choose between whether or not you will submit to his control and his authority or you will try and be in control for yourself and exert your authority. That ha- and that's a choice that, that we make every single day. Whose authority am I going to live under and who's in control? Right? One of the ways to know, listen, one of the diagnostic tools I'll give you, one of the ways to know you're trying to be in control, you're trying to exert your authority, is one of the ways you can know that is by looking at how often and around whom you exaggerate, stretch, and pad the truth. How often and around whom you stretch the truth to make your, paint yourself in a better light. Listen, if you're going to, for a job interview... Right? You're trying to land a, a better, high-paying job. Some of you may be coming out of high school into college, or you're trying to get into a particular um, college on your college applications and, and the, the, the things that are asking for for you to submit to them. Right? You have a choice. Am I in control, or is God in control? Right? And so if you're going for that better, high-paying job, and they're asking for your experiences and your education, right? you may go, well, man, I'm not going to stretch the truth and say I went to Harvard or Yale or Stanford, because when they meet me, they'll realize I didn't go to that school. <laughs> right? But maybe there are small things that I can kind of stretch within the context of that resume or that application process of that school to make myself look a little bit better, right? more impressive. Because I believe I've got to manufacture that. I've got to manipulate that. I've got to force that and control it as opposed to going, God is in control. My yes is yes. My no is no. Here's the full truth. Do you see that? One of the reasons we lie is because we believe we have to in order to maintain control in a relationship. Maintain control in, in the workplace. Maintain control in the home. Do you trust that God is sovereign? Or do you falsely believe that you are? 
One of the ways to combat this is to go to war against it with the truth. Listen, here's a, here's a text I want to encourage you to memorize and just go to war every time you begin to feel like I've, I've, I've got to have something more impressive than this, right? To show to people. Every time you begin to sense that rising in your heart, go to war with this text in Psalm 97. Psalm 97. No, wait. No, I'm sorry. Psalm 93. The psalmist starts off saying, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Your decrees are trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. God, you reign. You're in control. You're sovereign. You have authority. Your decrees are forever. They are eternal. I am not. And you look, you look yourself in the mirror and you quote that text and you remind yourself that you are not in control. God is. There is no reason to try and manufacture a personality that would be more impressive to other people. And so you would bend, stretch, exaggerate, manipulate, massage the truth to do so. Do you see where we're going with this? God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Second lie. The second truth that you gotta replace the lies that you tend to believe with is this, is that God is gracious so I don't have to prove myself. God is gracious so I don't have to prove myself. Listen, when it comes to identity, you will do one of two things. Either you will try and achieve identity for yourself by your accomplishments, your accolades, the things that you're able to do, or you will receive an identity based upon the accomplishments, achievements, and accolades of another. You will either try and achieve it or you will receive it. And if you believe that God is a cold, distant deity before whom you have to perform in order for him to accept you, then you will continually try and achieve an identity before him. But if you believe that God is a gracious, loving father, that indeed, as Chris Tomlin says, he is good, a good father. If you believe that he is kind to his children, that he is compassionate, that his heart is filled with love, then you can receive an identity from him and not to try and achieve one for yourself. Because God is gracious, I don't have to prove myself. See, one of the ways to know that you are relating to God as a legalistic Pharisee trying to achieve an identity before him is to look at your engagement with Christian community. Like here at Redeemer, we have what we call life groups, and they meet in homes throughout the community for, further, for Bible study, for taking what we talk about on Sunday mornings and trying to press it down into life. To see application develop out of that. So our knowledge, not only does our knowledge of the scriptures expand, but our experience of them does as well as it becomes more prevalent in our lives to submit ourselves to Jesus and his rule. And in the context of those life groups, we're living on mission together, trying to engage the people who are around us and share the love of God with them and draw them into a relationship with him as the Holy Spirit would use us as means to bring them to faith. But in the context of those life groups, oftentimes there are individuals who begin to move toward transparency and they move toward authenticity and they begin to share things about their marriages or about their workplaces or about their kids that open up Pandora's box to some degree. And if you believe that you have something to prove before God and that you're trying to achieve your identity before Him, you will be shocked 
Whenever someone else opens up their soul in the context of a group. And you will be guarded to do the same yourself. It will shock you at the transparency of others and you will pull away from transparency yourself. Because I've got something to prove. I've got an image to maintain before these people and before God. So what, what, talk about my anger issues? (laughs) Talk about the coldness in my marriage and how there's no intimacy? The reason that we conceal those things and cover them over and we aren't truthful about them is because we believe we've got something to prove. That's at the heart of it. But if you believe that God is a good, generous, and gracious Father, then you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove to me. You have nothing to prove to the person sitting to your left or to your right. And you have nothing to prove to him. Because he's embraced you with a love that is everlasting. So I don't need to cover things over. I don't need to be in control. I don't need to prove myself because God is great and he is gracious. See, unless you take those truths and you begin to chop away at the lies that your heart has been deceived by, you will continue to deceive. But if you take those truths and begin to go to war, against those things that have deceived your heart, and you will find yourself growing in truthfulness and whole life integrity so that your yes is yes and your no is no. And you have the security to do it. But I want to close this morning where we close every week. All right, if you're, with, you're here at Redeemer, you're like, well, I've heard this before. If you're not, maybe you haven't, and that's why I keep doing it. But here's where we want to end this morning. Is not, not only do we need to believe, to become the truthful people of God, we have to believe the truth about God. But not only do we have to believe the truth about God, but we have to behold the one who is truth. We have to behold and we have to gaze at him. Look, in the, in the text, Jesus says, um, the language that he uses is a very Old Testament language in verse 33 where he says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That word there literally comes from the Old Testament and in, even in the Greek New Testament it means to pay. It means to pay. In other words, in the Old Testament they talked about paying your vows. Why did they talk about paying your vows? Here's why. Because your pledges, your promises, your commitments, they have a cost to them, don't they? Like you paid your vow because your vow had a cost associated with it. Right? And so it wasn't necessarily that you were paying monetarily for your vow, but they had a cost associated in your life to tell the truth. So when you performed your vow, you were literally paying your vow. And Jesus says, listen, uh, he's saying that your everyday average speech and conversations are like vows that must be paid, but so often we don't pay them. We don't pay them. And one reason we don't keep our word, one reason we don't pay our vows and live lives of deep integrity is because we don't want to pay the cost. Right? We don't want the, because when you pay the cost of, of your vow, of, of truthfulness, of honesty, of integrity, it exposes you and it leaves you naked and vulnerable, doesn't it? That's a part of the cost associated with the truth coming out is now I don't have any fig leaves to hide behind anymore. So to pay your vow is costly and we fail to pay it. But listen, there is one who paid it for us. There is one who paid it in our place.
In John chapter 19, there's, a, there's an interesting exchange between Jesus and the scribes and the high priest. And Jesus gets struck across the face and he says, why did you strike me if I'm only telling you the truth? If I'm only saying what is right, what is in correspondence with reality. And they send him before Pilate and they get before Pilate, he gets before Pilate and they have that whole exchange. And Jesus says, I've come to bear witness about the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? Right? And so Jesus says, I'm bearing witness about the truth, about the reality of what life in relationship to God looks like, about who God is and about who you are as humanity. That's what I've come to bear witness about, Jesus says. And because Jesus embraced the truth of who God was and of who we were and the estrangement and distance between us, he took our, 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 the cost of truth for us and he was nailed to a cross on account of it. So he died in our place and he suffered our shame, the shame of our dishonesty, the shame of our exaggerations, the shame of our half-truths, the shame of our trying to paint ourselves in more of an impressive light, the shame of our identity slipping through our hands, the shame of all the damage that we've caused to human communities, first and foremost, many times our families, the shame of all the dignity that we've erased and wiped away from people, He took all that shame upon him. He didn't die an honorable death. He died a shameful one, but not his shame. Our shame was laid upon him. And when you behold the one who is truth, and you see the great King Jesus keeping his word and every pledge and promise that God had made is yes and amen in him. And you see him at the cross. It frees your heart to say, if he would do that for me, if he would do that in my place, my yes can be yes and my no can be no. I'm not sure either. (laughs) And through that, Jesus is building this community that would be bright and salty. Because what kind of community, what would it look like for people to really live that out? I think it would be called the church. I want to pray for us this morning as we close. Father, we thank you for your grace. Grace that is undeserved, grace that is not earned, grace that has come freely to us because of your Son. Grace that is applied to us by your Holy Spirit who causes us to come to life from the dead. And Father, I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters and for myself that we would live as people of truth with integrity, that our yes would be yes and our no would be no. That we would turn away from bold declarations, exaggerations, stretching, padding, manipulating, and massaging the truth to be people who's li- who are whole numbers and not fractions. And that we would go to war against the lies that would deceive our hearts into believing that we need to lie and that it's better to do so. That we would trust that you are in control of our lives so we don't have to manipulate the outcomes of situations. And that what you desire is best. 
Would you help us to go to war against the lie that we somehow have to achieve an identity before you by proving ourselves and that we would just receive one by grace as your child, not a hired hand. And that we would rest in those truths and that we would fight with those truths and that we would behold the one who is truth. And then he would capture our hearts. And he would remove our shame. And that we might be able to draw close to you and taste of your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name.